Well met, friends. I'm Steph Midlock. This month, as the title of this episode suggests, we're asking you to bear with us. Jude is taking this month off for some personal reasons. But never fear, dear listener, for I am here. This month, I'm bringing you a short episode about a topic that I think is neat. This is the first installment, and maybe the last, in a new series called Steph's Shorts. Welcome to my shorts! Cue the theme song. Steph Shorts, you're here in my shorts. Welcome to my shorts. Have fun in my shorts. Well, that was weird. Anyway, back to the matter at hand. Tolkien has a very long and interesting relationship with, you guessed it, bears. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We find bears in Tolkien's main texts, as well as his legendarium, and the stories and letters that he wrote for his children, and even some of his unpublished works. He wrote about them so often, he seems to have had bear fever. Get it? Fever. Fur. <laughs> James can put some cricket noises here. Before we get into the literature, let's get our bearings <laughs> by looking at the bears in Tolkien's domestic life. Tolkien's four children, John, Michael, Christopher, and Priscilla, all loved bears. We know this from a couple of context clues. In the Father Christmas letters from 1928, Father Christmas says that polar bear picked out John's presence that year because John liked bears. We also have lots of writings from Tolkien's children that mentions the bears and their, their soft toy collection. If you can get your hands on a copy, there is a really wonderful book called The Tolkien Family Album that was written by John and Priscilla Tolkien. It's a scrapbook of sorts of like family photos and musings from the Tolkien children. I had a look in my own copy and I was pleased to find a few photos that pictured these famed teddy bears. There's a picture from the early 1920s that shows Edith and the young Michael and John on the steps of their home in Leeds, in which John is holding like a little kind of stiff looking blonde teddy bear. It's very cute. There's also a, a wonderful photo of the family having a tea party in their backyard at their home in North Oxford in May of 1928, in which you can see multiple teddy bears enjoying cups of tea with the boys and their parents. There's also a wonderful photo that's captioned Priscilla's family that depicts a number of stuffed animals, uh, mostly dogs, but a few of them are teddy bears, I think, uh, positioned on a wicker chair and also in a wicker basket. And the text that goes along with this photo describes that starting in the mid-1930s, the Tolkien family took regular annual holidays to Devon. And while Edith and the children would come down by train, Ronald would pack up their all their luggage in the family car and drive it down to Devon. And the text states, quote, he would be surrounded by large numbers of Priscilla's soft toys, which she insisted should share the holiday. On one trip, someone asked him if he was a traveling salesman in teddy bears. Check it out. That book is super lovely. You can find copies of it in the library and also on eBay for not too much. And it's just such a charming book. All this is to really say and to establish that Tolkien's kids loved teddy bears. There were teddy bears around the house. These teddy bears definitely influenced some of Tolkien's work. The most obvious line we can draw 
is to that of Polar Bear in the Father Christmas Letters. For those of you who have not listened to Atherbeth's episodes 17 and 18, in which we go over these letters in great detail, Tolkien wrote a series of letters to his children from Father Christmas for a period of about 20 years. And one of the big characters in these Father Christmas Letters is Polar Bear, also called North Polar Bear. In the letter from November 1929, Polar Bear tells the reader that his real name is Karhu, but he doesn't share it very often. He starts out as, like in these letters, as being kind of lazy and troublesome. He's really very much a character of comic relief. He's always dropping presents or tumbling down the stairs or, you know, he sets off all of the Aurora Borealis fireworks or whatever. He gets into all kinds of trouble. He also interjects little comments into the margins of the letters and he even like writes little notes that accompany father christmas's letters and they're often like a bit sassy in nature as the years go on though we see polar bear transitioning from comic relief into like a very strong fighter and he becomes very helpful to father christmas by the end of the letters he's like a super warrior bear and he squashes the goblins he kind of kicks their butts and takes their names, you know, kick butt, take names, leave no enemies unturned. He's pretty cool. Allow me to come back to Polar Bear a little bit later in this episode, as there is an interesting connection to be made. Also in the Father Christmas Letters, there is Cave Bear, also known as Mr. Cave Bear, who's a cousin of Polar Bear. He is the eldest of the few remaining cave bears, and there's also a mention of cave cubs a few years later in a subsequent letter. Polar Bear has two nephews, Paksu and Valkotuka. They get into all kinds of trouble. Basically, Valkotuka puts holly in Father Christmas's bed and he pours black ink into the fire. He's kind of a jerk. And Paksu, I mean, this guy, he's just like right after my heart. He ate two whole Christmas puddings totally raw. Man, I feel you. <laughs> I feel that. In a letter from December 21st, 1927, there is a mention of the Great Bear, Polar Bear's cousin, who Father Christmas says is shining bright. This is the constellation Ursa Major, so one more bear in the Father Christmas letters. The next work I'd like to mention is Mr. Bliss, which is an illustrated children's book about an ill-fated man named Mr. Bliss and his yellow car and his inability to drive correctly, which mirrors Tolkien's real life, which is wonderful. In this story, we have three bears, Archie, Teddy, and Bruno. These guys are like highwaymen. They're in the woods. They're definitely like our comedic villains of the story. They stop Mr. Bliss's car and they like hold him up. He's got these two passengers, Mr. Day and Mrs. Knight in the car. And basically the bears steal all the bananas and cabbages that they're carrying. Oh boy. It's a whole thing. These bears also crash like a picnic that was being hosted by a family called the Dorkinses, and they eat a bunch of stuff in the Dorkinses garden. Oh man. At one point, Mrs. Knight says, drat the bears, which I love. They abscond with the cabbages and the bananas. And then later in the story, they do some light cosplay of spoopy things like ghosts and goblins in order to give Mr. Bliss a little fright. In the end, they end up hosting a meal for Mr. Bliss and all of these other characters at their woodland home. According to Joan Tolkien, who was the wife of Tolkien's son, Michael, in an article from the Sunday Times that was published on October 10th, 1982, titled Original of a Tolkien Tale, the bears were based on teddy bears that were owned by Tolkien's sons. 
And Joan said that Archie, the bear called Archie, was her husband Michael's bear, which is lovely. Very cute. Of course, many Tolkien readers will be well-versed in a very important bear person from The Hobbit, known as Beorn. We all know him well. As Jude has said on the Atherbeth podcast many times, The Hobbit is fairy fan fiction written for his three sons, John, Michael, and Christopher. With how much his children loved their teddy bears, it seems that Tolkien could not resist putting some bear action into The Hobbit. Enter Beorn. Described by Gandalf to Bilbo and the company as a skin changer who transforms into a big black bear, Bjorn is, in his human form, a big old guy, muscly guy with black hair and a big black beard, and he's friends with horses, so yum. Hello. Okay, sorry. I just had to be a little thirsty, even though it's just me and Jude's not here to (laughs) be weirded out by it. Gandalf tells the group that some say Bjorn is descended from the great and ancient bears of the mountains that lived there before the giants came. And other rumors say, and Gandalf believes, that Bjorn is a man descended from the first humans that lived before the dragons and goblins came to that part of the world. So they've been around for a long time. Gandalf says that Bjorn is under his own enchantment. That's an interesting turn of phrase, under his own enchantment. I'm going to touch on that in just a moment. Gandalf warns Bilbo and the rest of the company to be polite and not to annoy Bjorn when they're introduced because Bjorn can, quote unquote, be appalling when he is angry. And Gandalf says, like, he gets angry pretty easily. So, samesies. Gandalf tells the group that Bjorn lives in a wooden hall in the woods. Like he has these really beautiful like horses and cattle that he talks to. He's a bit weird. And he has, he eats honey from these very fierce ass bees. Um, By the way, I think fierce ass bees is an amazing band name. So if anybody wants to join the fierce ass bees, let me know. Gandalf said that Bjorn was sitting in bear form on the top of the Karak one night, like looking at the moon, waxing poetic, and Gandalf heard him growl in the tongue of bears. And Bjorn said, quote, the day will come when they will perish and I shall go back. End quote. I think that's interesting. Let's keep that in mind as well. So in the Battle of the Five Armies, We know Bayorn appeared transformed into a giant bear. He rescued Thorin from the goblins and he killed their leader. Noted Tolkien scholar John Rateliff in the history of The Hobbit notes that earlier versions of The Hobbit uses the plural bears in the Battle of the Five Armies, indicating that Bayorn may have had at one point a troop of bears to fight with in the Battle of the Five Armies. That's amazing! I wish that that had been a thing just because I would love to read that. That sounds wonderful. But as it is in the published version, he is alone. After the battle, we know that he gathers the woodsmen and becomes the the great chief of the Vales of Anduin, and his descendants, known as the Bjornings, also ruled the area as skin changers, and eventually he was succeeded by his son, Grim Bjorn the Old. In his book, The History of the Hobbit, John Rateliff points out that in The Lord of the Rings, they never specifically say that Bjorn dies, but merely that he passes his rule to his son. So... Rateliff postures that perhaps he went back to the mountains to his roots and we can just remember back to what Gandalf told saying that he heard Bayorn say I shall go back 
So that's kind of neat. I don't know. I kind of, that's what I'm going to say in my own mind happened. Because I like the thought of him somewhere out there still in his bear form, clumbering around with his weird bees and his horse friends. In fact, sounds like he's living my best life. So, hey oh. So the history of The Hobbit written by John D. Ratliff is such an amazing source of bear information, it turns out. So let's let's look into it a little bit more. In earlier versions of The Hobbit, Bayorn was originally named Medwed, and he became a bear seemingly due to his own enchantment, as I said earlier. So in earlier drafts, Ratliff notes that uh, Tolkien seems to have hesitated over whether Medwed was under some kind of enchantment. It seems like Tolkien eventually landed on his own enchantment keeping it a little bit vague, but maybe saying that, you know, it was his own magic that has done this. By the end of The Hobbit, we see Bjorn altered. After having saved Thorin and killing the Goblin King, he goes from being kind of a solitary guy up in the mountains to becoming like a great leader of men. Ratliff notes that while this wasn't fully realized in the published book, there are some notes in Tolkien's earlier drafts and sort of scribbled on the backs of unsent letters that suggest that there is a link between Bjorn's disenchantment after the Battle of the Five Armies and becoming a great leader of men. So though he retains his shape-shifting ability and passes it on to, a, to his descendants, he somehow like becomes able to, to kind of be, be a leader all of a sudden, right? And give up that solitary lifestyle. Ratliff notes that Medwed resembles the warrior werebears of Old Norse and Anglo-Saxon literature. There is a Norse poem called Birkamal that tells the story of a man who could assume the form of a great bear in battle. Ratliff says that while the original poem is lost, there are elements of his poem in like Beowulf and in Hrolf Kraki Saga. Tolkien was interested in these bear stories, and in fact, he liked them so much that he recreated the lost folktale in an unpublished short story called Selig's Bell, the text for which is in the archives of the Bodleian Library in Oxford. I think it's the book says that he wrote it originally for a Welsh magazine that unfortunately like went out of business right before it was supposed to be published. So it was never published. I would love to read that. I don't know if the Selig spell is a thing we can read somewhere, but boy, that sounds amazing. In Hrolf Kraki Saga, we meet a great hero named Bothfar Bjarki. Bjarki is the youngest of three brothers who were the sons of a ill-fated prince who was turned into a bear by his like kind of horny witchy stepmother who was being very inappropriate. Bjarki is the very is like a very brave dude. He's like the best champion of his king and he in this in this saga projects his self as like a bear form into the battle in defense of King Hrolf. Ratliff notes that this Medwed Bjorn character might be a combination of Bjarki, but not fully. He also has, as I mentioned, these two other brothers, a half-human named Elgfrothi, who is the eldest of the three brothers and the wildest. He, like, lived alone. He was not a great guy, maybe. Kind of misunderstood. And then the middle brother, King Thorir Houndsfoot, a chief and a very handsome gent. And Ratliff notes that it kind of seems like Tolkien took some elements of each of these brothers to create Medwed slash Bjorn. We know, of course, that Tolkien loved everything Old English, and it should be noted that 
the Old English word Bjorn means warrior or hero and is related to the Old Norse word Bjorn meaning bear. So kind of a fun connection there. So I said that I would come back to Polar Bear from the Father Christmas Letters, and here we are. There is an excellent article by Chris Swank that was published in the Mythlore Journal in 2013 called The Hobbit and the Father Christmas Letters, in which Chris Swank discusses kind of the similarities between Polar Bear and the character Bjorn from The Hobbit. Basically, they're both, they both can be kind of gruff and grumpy and not very polite, but they also have this other side where they can be jolly and humorous. Um, they both also love dancing at parties, which is great. Uh, I'm into that. Swank notes that we see a lot of illustrations of polar bear dancing in the margins for many of the different years of the Father Christmas letters. Chris notes that, likewise, Bjorn hosts a meeting of little bears, large bears, ordinary bears, and gigantic bears, all dancing outside from dark to nearly dawn. So there's definitely a lot of dancing going on, which is amazing. Swank notes that the timing of when Tolkien wrote Bayorn's battle scene, right, the, in the Battle of the Five Armies, uh, in The Hobbit, this timing occurs about a year before the 1933 letter in, Father, in the Father Christmas letters, where we see Polar Bear changing from a comic relief sidekick to a warrior hero. Chris describes the 1933 letter where the battle occurs between the goblins and Father Christmas and his buddies. And Father Christmas describes that there were like a thousand goblins in the cellars, lighting fires and being dicks, and that Polar Bear and the gnomes wipe the floor with the goblins. And Polar Bear actually turns out to be pretty fierce. And Chris just draws this similarity that it's sort of both Bjorn and polar bear step into this role of like a warrior bear and a hero kind of at the same time and i just think that's a really nice similarity to draw so we have this fascinating character bjorn slash medwed he's a skin changer he uses his own magic to transform into a bear he seems to have the qualifications <laughs> koala <laughs> of a man and a bear although wait you know what? Koalas are not bears. They're marsupials. That joke doesn't work. Oh no. Okay. Pretend I didn't say that. But what about Tolkien's writings about bears in the wider legendarium? Well, we are in luck folks, because there is a recently published book that touches on this very subject. So let us talk about the nature of middle earth by J.R.R. Tolkien edited by Carl F. Hofstetter. This was published in two, uh, in like September, I think, of 2021 by HarperCollins. So part three, the world, its land, and its inhabitants, chapter eight of the land and beasts of Numenor. We get some great bear facts. I am barely able to contain my excitement. Let us get into it. So according to Christopher Tolkien, this text dates back to 1965 and there's about 10 written pages. And while there are like three versions of this text as a whole, it's pretty much the same in all three. Some of this was published in a section called The Description of the Island of Numenor in the Unfinished Tales. However, Carl tells us that much of this work has not been published before, which is really great. So it starts that information about the flora and fauna of Numenor was preserved in Gondor, but the information that's there is pretty vague and it lacked a lot of detail and it was thought to be somewhat inaccurate. It seemed that no one lived on the island of Elena, or that's the island that is called the Land of Gift. 
the island on which the realm of Numenor was actually founded, before the Edain came. And so when they arrived, the beasts and the birds had no fear of them. Animals were way more friendly on Numenor than they were anywhere else on Middle-earth. It's difficult to say which animals and plants already existed in Numenor before the men came to the island and which ones they already like had and brought with them from Middle-earth. However, it's interesting that the Quenya and Cinderin forms of animal names from Numenor were not found in Elvish or human languages of Middle-earth, perhaps indicating that many of these animals were special to Numenor. So I think that's kind of neat. There's a lot of information about like, They did not have dogs or wolves, but they had a lot of foxes and they had these weird rabbits called Lapoldi, blah, blah, blah. We're skipping all that. We're going directly to the bear section. So there's a couple of great paragraphs about bears. Both, basically, there were both black bears and brown bears in large numbers in the mountainous terrain of Numenor. The great black bears were found mostly in the northern region of Forostar. And the the relationship between the Numenorean folks and the bears was, pause, a little bit odd. Basically, they were friends um, and they showed curiosity to one another. So they were not hostile to each other except during mating time and during the first year of the cubs' lives. They could become angry if they were disturbed. The Numenoreans tended to leave the bears alone for the most part and very few Numenoreans were killed by bears. And there's an interesting wording moment here. The text says that the moments of violence between the men and bears were sort of regarded as mishaps and were not thought of as, quote, reasons for war upon the whole race. I think using the word race instead of species is interesting. It feels to me that Tolkien is humanizing the bears a little bit here in the same way that we see bears humanized like throughout his work, including like Polar Bear and Mr. Bliss, you know, highwayman bears and all these things. So many of the Numenorean bears were pretty tame. They did not live like with men or very near men, but they would visit the homes of men, apparently, and be given honey, which they loved, which I I liked because it reminded me of, of course, the fierce bees of Beorn and um, as well as the the honey that was eaten in Mr. Bliss by the three highwaymen bears. Sometimes and very occasionally a bad bear, quote unquote, would break into the hives and eat all the honey. But for the most part, they were they were pretty cool guys. The weirdest thing of all were these, quote unquote, bear dances. The bears in particular, the black bears, held their own dances. But apparently, one of my favorite parts is a note that says, but their dancing was improved by the instructions of men. And this begs the question, like, what dance moves were the folks of Numenor teaching the bears? The Macarena, the electric slide, the flossing, the Carlton. I need to know what dances these bears were doing. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, sometimes the bears would perform dances for the humans of Numenor as entertainment. The most famous was the Great Bear Dance of Tampola in Forostar. There's also note of a Quenya term meaning bear dance, which is pronounced Ruxoale. I don't know. Ruxoale. Ruxoale. Well, we need Jude here for the... (laughs) for the pronunciation, so please don't mind me. Basically, every year in the autumn, after the Thanksgiving to Eru, which is a big uh, autumnal feast called Eru Hantale, folks would come from all over Numenor to see this big bear dance, apparently. So I guess the bears would move in unison together slowly, uh, and I like, quote, but dignified, 
in groups, sometimes as large as like 50 bears. But something that is so funny that I just love is, you know, you were not allowed to laugh at the bears, even though it looked a bit silly, because the sound of men's laughter they were the bears were not accustomed to it and it would alarm and anger the bears. So, you know, it seems to this podcaster that perhaps the bears were not interested in constructive criticism, which I totally get. A footnote from Carl states that in earlier versions the sound of men's laughter was a sound that the bears resented. And I mean like, you know, same for the most part. I get that. So we have this like really silly, interesting little like bear dance moment in this new text from Tolkien. And I just find it charming and weird and wonderful. And I like the idea that somehow this was important enough that, you know, this mention that, you know, whilst we don't have many written things from Numenor that survived, right? Somehow this, the idea that these bear dances were important enough to be written down and carried over the sea. Um, that's great. So really here in the end of this very short episode, why should we, why should we care about this? Why should we care about bears? Well, I have barely <laughs> scratched the surface here, but it seems to me the influence of bears and where bear stories can be clearly seen in many points of Tolkien's work. And when talking with our Atherbeth producer, James, we discussed that the animals that Tolkien chooses to call out as important things, you know, animals like the eagles or the Meraz horses, right? Or, you know, or and in this case, the bears, they have human-like qualities. They can understand us and they can speak with us. They carry us into battle, right? And they dance for us. They're often our friends, um, but they also have these intricate social hierarchies all of their own. And perhaps this is a nod to Tolkien's pastoralism and his embrace of nature and all of its creatures, the bears in Tolkien stories are mischievous and comedic, but they're also fierce and brave and sometimes angry and dangerous as well. This is, I don't know, it just seems like this is something for all of us to keep in mind as we head into the new year, right? Like the bears, like Tolkien's bears, we are also two sides of the same coin and there is a beast that lurks within all of us. So on that, I'm going to wish you a happy new year and thanks for listening. This has been Steph Shorts. This has been Steph Shorts, cargo boxer or escort. You've been in my shorts, now get out of my shorts. The road may go ever on and on, but this short episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Eremitic Jude, and I can be found at the North Four. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond5. Additional music and sound effects licensed from Soundstripe, which can be found at soundstripe.com. 
Today's episode was produced by James Pearson. Happy New Year and thanks for listening. Titled Original of a Tolkien. Really? Oh, really? Is that what it's really called?